you make my earthquake uh make my earthquake i'm still fresh off that concert so i'm still feeling it all right now i'm feeling it keep going yeah okay, well well that's enough because i think you can get sued for for singing too long of an excerpt as well as playing too long of an excerpt <laughs> okay anyway i'm garrett mcqueen i'm scott blankenship and this is triloquy true and real stories from the fringes of classical music shout out to gold link to jaden smith and to tyler the creator for an uh, an amazing show last night at the Armory uh, in Minneapolis. Really great sets, uh, really hype audience. I, I felt a little old in that crowd, actually. At 32, you a, felt a lot of A lot of the folks at that show had the um, the X's marked on their hands. Uh, saying that, so the, the line at the bar was always very short, which yeah. I'm thankful for. How was the line <laughs> at the bathroom? Oh, I didn't even go in the bathroom. The the the, the music, the whole time. I didn't want to miss a, a single moment. Oh my gosh! I'll have to show you. Uh, my I photos. saw some of the videos on Instagram, yeah. and it looked packed. I mean, you could hear everybody singing along with Earthquake. Yeah, plainly. Yeah, it, it and it just it feels so good to. You know, because I, I listen to so much, I live so much of my life in in solitude, you mm-hmm. know, so when I listen to this music and stuff, I'm doing it by myself. So it's weird to be in a crowd of thousands and everyone knows all of this music oh, as well you as thought, you do. You, you know? thought it was something personal. You thought that he recorded <laughs> that for you. Well, not necessarily that, but there's just that feeling, you know, of, of being in a room of people that really appreciate yeah. all of that music. And, um, and before we move on from that, um, I have to say that during Jaden Smith's set, he kept calling Tyler his boyfriend, and I don't know if that's true or not. And of course, the uh, the album that Tyler the Creator did uh, for this tour, Igor, is about a breakup of his. But the lo- but the more you listen through the album, and the closer you listen, you realize he's talking about a guy. He's not talking about a, a woman that he he broke up with. Mm-hmm. So you know the space felt very you know it wasn't like a queer space. It wasn't like that, but it definitely felt. Um, just just more inclusive in a natural way. There weren't rainbow flags anywhere or anything like that, but it just felt like no one was gonna beat me up if, beat me up if Dale gave me a kiss or something. You know, it's it's a it's a, a level of inclusion and equity that they figured out how to make exist uh, in in that corner of hip hop. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do here, right? So really, um, it, it seems like Tyler, the creator, is sort of pointing in a direction of where this music should be going now. Right. The more inclusivity, things that, obviously, there were white folks there, right? Mostly. Mostly white. And that was the other what? weird thing about living in Minnesota. You go to a rap show and it's mostly white folks. But um, but it's cool. And and I don't want to make it sound like Tyler, the creator, and Jaden Smith, um, and also Goldlink, who opened up the show, that they're making... Um, these active, intentional efforts toward that sort of uh, inclusion as much as they're just presenting themselves authentically. And for Tyler, the creator, a part of that authentic uh, presentation of himself is telling the story about how um, he went through a breakup with a with a young man. So I like that. Yeah, so shout out to him. If you've never listened to any Tyler, I highly recommend uh, the uh, album Igor, I-G-O-R. It's very much hip-hop, but it has a lot of, like, chill vibe and cool vibe and jazz influence and all that stuff i think it's a great intro hip-hop album if you don't listen to much hip-hop that's the key word there that i want to touch on is album yeah album because not many people are making albums anymore they're doing a single you know so that they can get that out on itunes or whatever and then they sort of have some bs things that sort of fill out the rest of the release so talk a little bit about igor as a as an album well it um so and, and I will also uh, talk about this in relation to Beyonce, whose birthday it is today. As we're <laughs> I thought Aaron we does. were going to get away without mentioning Beyonce once. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you're saying uh, Triloquy listeners have like a, a bingo and like be- mentioning Beyonce <laughs> is on there. Well, fine. You're going to win bingo today. Um, so with Igor, with uh, Beyonce's not her latest album, but the one before that, Lemonade. Um, and, and another, you know, I, I can name artists all day. How from beginning to end, you're telling a story. 25 by Adele. Uh, beginning to end, uh, a story is being told. So it's not just a collection of pieces. One one song right after another. This song has 
you know, something to do with the next song. And then it kind of evolves in, 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 in many ways like a symphony. But I kind of have to say more contemporary symphonies because that, that sort of hodgepodge, that one after another thing you're talking about, it, from my perspective, um, is, is more uh, pronounced in like the, the old classical era symphony and maybe even some of the early romantic era symphonies. Well, like Franz Liszt, you know, he wrote the, his, um, his, sim, his symphonic tone poems. Right, so that music tells a story. Yeah, and, right. they, and, they, and it goes from different tempos and, and, and such with, it, seamlessly. It'll go from one to the other. And isn't it Rachmaninoff, his third piano concerto that goes seamlessly from front to back? The, um, it, it does, but I think more of what you're thinking of, the end of the second piano concerto, if you played the end of the second and the beginning of the first, those flow together. Oh, cool. And, okay. Into one. Okay. So, yeah. you know, so a, a lot of composers uh, have had that um, in their mind, as do or as should authors. Today we're going to um, talk about uh, a couple books. The uh, my, my interview today is with uh, Cameron Williams. She wrote uh, a children's book called Kinderloot that uh, is actually, there's a digital version of it uh, at yourclassical.org if you want to check that out. I met Cameron uh, at Sphinx this past February. Uh, she presented the book to um, a uh, an event that I hosted called Sphinx Tank, you know, where people are, mm-hmm. you know, talking with sharks and trying Trying to get funding for a project, she didn't win um, that, uh, you know that that funding that project. But I was so moved by her presentation that I knew that uh, you know the folks here at Your Classical we needed to showcase her, and uh, I knew I wanted to interview for her for a triloquy. So um, so uh, that will be the interview uh, for today. But first, I want to um, talk about another book called Black Horn. So. Um, you know, I went to the Gateways uh, Festival, uh, you know, about a month ago, and uh, one of the big things I did, I hosted a panel discussion uh, with the author of Black Horn. His name is Bob Watt. He was the first uh, black person to um, win a spot with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and he just sort of uh, recounts, you know, from the beginning of his life all the way to today. He's retired from the L.A. field, but he's still playing. He um, he does a lot of talks around the country and around the world, really um phenomenal guy and I chose a few topics from his story for us to dive into today so you ready for that I'm ready so um toward the beginning of his life um and in the beginning of the book he talks about his dad who was a a a jazz musician you know just playing gigs here and there and how the culture of jazz and jazz musicians um has a lot to do at least in those days excuse me, with sex and, and sexuality. Even the word jazz is, uh, you know, is, is pretty close to a, a, a sexual slang word that we still use today. Mm-hmm. If I say it, will you bleep me? Well, let's, I won't say it. Let's find out. <laughs> but anyway, it sounds a lot like jizz, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just like scat is a jazz thing and also a sexual thing. So, you know, the, the, he, he talks a lot about those correlations. And there was this one jazz guy who would just always sit on the stoop in his neighborhood um, I forget. I think his name was Jones or something. They called him Jones. And Bob Watt would walk past him every day going to school and uh, he would give him sort of many birds and the bees talks mm-hmm. um, along the way. And one of the things he talked about was, um, and again, if you want, you know, the real account, read the book. I'm not making this up. I'm just, you know, he talks about how white women are going to want Bob's body after he goes through um puberty and how after he begins to um his body begins to grow in a certain way and his um you know he, he comes into himself as a man how a lot of white women are, are, are going to find that uh exotic and different and, and you know we're talking about the um the 40s and 50s so you know segregation was still very much a thing even yeah. in new jersey uh where he lived and um, so how, that mystery and, and exoticism still lived. So I'm like, OK, so a few chapters later, he goes into um, the story about a substitute teacher that, you know, feels sorry for him, sees him walking miles to school in the snow, carrying this big uh, French horn case. So starts giving him rides home. And eventually the substitute teacher starts hitting on this, you know, 16, 17 year old high school student. And so that's been going on for a long time, a long too. time. And in the book, he says that he, uh, you know, always turned down the advances. But in real life, he told me that the publisher just didn't want him to uh, put that in the book, but that he had the teacher many, many, many times. Whoa. So what? So 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 let's sit with that 
uh, for a minute. The idea of this uh, young black student being coerced into sex by um, this, you know, older white substitute teacher having, after having been told by someone in the community that, oh, you know, these white women are going to see your body as exotic and uh, they're going to um, they're going to be going after you. It doesn't sound to me like it was coercion. What do you mean? You said he was coerced into sex with a substitute teacher. I mean, but what 17-year-old straight boy doesn't want to tell the story of, oh, I, I, I smashed the, the teacher last night? I mean, was that something you ever... I'm going to put you on the spot. To, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I mean, that certainly wasn't the case for me, and a teacher never came on to me, but I think that was just a really interesting thing for him to, to put into his musical story, the story of his musical upbringing. Well, I also wanted to... I was curious about how often, if it's more frequent, that it happens that a white man would look at a black girl as exotic. Do you think that was happening at the same time? And then you also have the power dynamics of the older woman and the younger man versus the older man and the younger woman. Yeah. Because um, I would imagine that you would think that there's more demonization of men you know, uh, attracting younger women than the converse, right? That always irritated me when I was in my 20s and 30s, seeing these guys that were 50 and 60 years old coming down and dating women out of my pool. You know, (laughs) hey, hang on here. You're supposed to be up in the 40s and 50s with your own. Well, maybe they just had a little more swag or something. (laughs) Or probably a little more money. That could be. (laughs) At the very least. I do know one instance when I went to hear a, uh, a blues band play and... Uh, the guitarist came out into the crowd and he was like moving around through the crowd. He was on a wireless and he grabbed my girlfriend's finger and used her fingernail as a pick in front of everybody. What concert was this? It was, you know, it was like a a blues band in a bar. Okay, so not like a famous... No, no, nothing like that. But there is still that thing about uh, a black musician has a certain sort of, like you said, swagger and a certain allure. Yeah. So that happened. Yeah. And how did, and how did that make you feel? (laughs) I'm, I don't have anything to worry about. Oh, oh, okay. Well, excuse me then. Well, very good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another part of the, of Bob Watts book I wanted to bring up, um, is more tied to his musical journey. So, you know, he, he does make it to um, NEC, the New England Conservatory, eventually, but he has to uh, do um, auditions. And then uh, there's summer festivals that played a huge role in his getting into that school uh, after graduating high school. And, you know, there's a lot of money in, involved with that. And he talks about how he would go hungry some days because he just didn't have lunch money at some of these festivals or X, Y, and Z. And, and his horn uh, teacher, his horn professor, um, you know, sort of facilitated some of the money things. Mm-hmm. After he, he talks uh, many times in the book about how his teacher would just very frustratingly pull two $20 bills out of his pocket and slam it on the table for him to go buy this or go catch this train or, or, or whatever. Um, and while it may have been frustrating for the teacher, that I'm sure that meant the world to him in the moment. And then as history proves, as his story proves, he wouldn't get where he was going without that help, you know. And it just makes me think about the big hurdle that is money and that is finances when it comes to becoming a professional in classical music. There's also another hurdle, and that is the family one, because he said that when he was first starting out and he was putting in a, a lot of attention toward the horn, his father was saying, things like that's that's an instrument for the thin lip white folks and and you know that's so a, how do you get over that well you know? and and that's specifically is a trope that i've heard with my own ears so um in my uh beginning band class and shout out to ron turner the the person who you know started all of this classical music nonsense for me um mm-hmm. there were two uh black girls in my um in, in my beginning band class, uh, one of them was named uh, Ashley. So shout out to Ashley. I forget the other uh, girl's name. She's a woman now. Um, but he talked about how he wanted them to play the horn and how in his day 
band directors would always say, oh, well, black people can't play the horn because their lips are just a little too big. Um, God. So that that is, and, but anyway, so, and, and they played the horn and they sounded pretty good as Bob Watt did. You know, his whole career has been surrounded by the horn. So yeah, that specifically is, is definitely a trope in music education and classical music that, I, I don't know, I think it might still be floating around today. You know, another part of the uh, of Bob Watts book that stuck out to me. So when he finally did win his audition uh, with the L.A. Phil, um, he said people were very cold to him. A a lot of people didn't really want to talk to him. And one of the few people um, that reached out to him at first and welcomed him into the orchestra uh, was a guy he described as an Asian violinist named T.K., and that violinist said, "Oh, it's so great that you're here. You got to get, you got to get uh, more color folks um, into this orchestra." That c-, c word. Well, this was the '60s. You know, he won that job in I think '63 or '64. Um, so, okay. so, but, 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 what stood out more to me was even in the most, um, uh, in the in the most best intended way. This guy was making Bob Watt the representative for black classical musicians. Mm, and that's mm-hmm. something that, you know, uh, e- even today, uh, black folk like myself deal with that. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to be a, uh, you know, to, to offer my perspective, but I can never be the spokesperson. You right. know, like I can, black folks are not a monolith, you know, and, right. and so, you, so you can't make that assumption. And, and that's one of those uh, big challenges, but... Um, but 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 he made it uh, into the orchestra and and talked about we talked about this a couple of days ago how he um, would meet black folks in the L.A. area who would come to concerts and stuff and I, I had to flip through the book to find the phrase he used but he said all the or most of the black people he met were trying to achieve second class white citizenship so what is that phrase what comes to mind when I say that phrase second class white citizenship first off I, that's a phrase that I have used in exchanges that I've had with cousins. Oh, really? Tell me about that. Because, well, this was when the marriage equality thing was going on, Mm. and I was still up on Facebook, and one of my cousins wrote that that she was very concerned about me because I said that our state was on the right side of history when it came to marriage equality. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was one of the phrases that I used in the back and forth with her was that I am against anything that creates a second class citizen, mm. anything that that knocks that puts somebody at a level beneath somebody else just for color of skin or sexuality or the amount of money that they make or whatever it is. That's just the phrase that I would use. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like second class citizens. I don't like people being made to appear as a second class citizen. So that that. Um, rings a bell for me. That's a, a dog whistle. I yeah, guess, yeah. Me. And you know, really, I, sometimes I think uh, you know. I want to shout out my. Um, I, I want to shout out uh, my homie Titus, who is down. He's principal oboe of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Um, one of the one of the many you know incredible uh, black classical musicians out in the world doing doing the doing the good work. Um, he talks a lot about how some conversations like these need to be more in house need to be for, yeah. for, for black folks to have. And sometimes I think the second-class white citizenship conversation is one of those because it's really easy for black folks to consider ourselves successful when we have managed to do what the great white man has done, like join a world-class symphony orchestra and how we don't have to validate ourselves through that. That's, you know, that's, that's one of my biggest challenges with people. Classical music is the line of work I happen to fall into because in seventh grade, you know, shout out again to Ron Turner, I signed up for band and, and that turned in, in, into a career for me. It, it wasn't me trying to to achieve, sec, as Bob Watts said, second class white citizenship. As much as it was me just trying to make a living doing something that I enjoy doing, and want to do. So uh, Bob Watt talks a lot about uh, that challenge as far as meeting, you know, black folks in the Los Angeles area that were, you know, not. Uh, trying to be anything else but themselves because at the end of the day that's what Bob Watt was doing he was being himself Um, you know back to that uh, and we're going to get to Cameron but I just have a couple more uh, you know teasers for this book because I think if you're listening right now you would really enjoy reading it Uh, he talks about after he got that uh, job with the LA Phil there was a time when he was uh, you know just sitting in the warm-up room uh, practicing and you know back then the guys wore pretty tight pants with the bell bottoms and all that stuff 
And he recalls the story of that white fascination with uh, the black body and, and black sexual organs when someone in the orchestra walks in the room, comes in, takes the belt buckle of his pants and starts jiggling it up and down so that you can see how big his is and the guy goes see look at this guy look at how well well endowed black folks are and in the book bob watts says he puts his horn down and puts that guy in a chokehold and he never had a problem with him again but (laughs) excuse me (laughs) i'm getting choked up (laughs) thinking about how hard i was laughing when i when i read um you don't do that you don't (laughs) grab somebody's but but anyway, but that you know that is, that is his story, and he ties that with with race, and you know I think it was really brilliant how he you know early on in the book he talks about how the guy sitting on the stoop said something along those lines, and mm. how he dealt with it as a high schooler, and then all the way um, into his career. The last thing about this book I want to um, sort of uh, shout out, he talks about how um, so he won a job as assistant uh, principal horn. Um, so that means the principal horn plays all the solos and, and does mm-hmm. all that, blah, blah, blah. He did get opportunities to play principal horn later down the line. But the music director at the time, and oh, I hate so much that I'm forgetting his name because he's a he's a conductor that, you know, that we play all the time. Um, he, uh, he Bob Watt in the book talks about how this music director didn't too much like the idea of too many black principals. And there was this um, percussionist who came through who was black who um, was going out for principal timpani. So in an orchestra, you know, being a percussionist and being the timpani player, those are two different jobs. Um, And how he sounded so great on timpani and how um, the music director just did not want him to be principal timpani. So he played um, uh, percussion and he held that position for, for all of his career. His name is Rainer Carroll. Excuse me, it worked sir. out for him. He's got a he's got well, symbol endorsements. And... Well, but but did it work out for him? He wanted a he wanted a position as principal timpani, and according to Bob Watt and many other uh, musicians in the orchestra, his um, auditions and the way he performed on timpani were phenomenal. But the music director just did not want you know a black man in in that spotlight. You know, principal timpani is one of the you know major positions in an orchestra, especially when you're talking about. You know, some of those, you know, we were, earlier we were talking about some of those uh, romantic era symphonies. So when you uh, hear a, like Beethoven five, for example, yeah. the timpani player is is a main character in, uh, in that story. And, you know, so I don't know if it was a win for Rain or Carol. He got to stay with the orchestra, just not in a position that the music director thought he should be in. So that's that speaks to um, keeping black folks corralled in certain places, making sure that we aren't in too many positions of power and X, Y and Z. So. Yeah, if you're listening right now, um, I highly recommend that you uh, pick up the book Black Horn. I read it um, just through my Kindle app. Uh, You can buy it on uh, Amazon. You can also order it. Um, Yeah, the story of Bob Watt, the first black horn player, uh, the first black member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Today, uh, I chat with Cameron Williams, uh, who wrote a much more lighthearted book. You know, this isn't about sex and scandal and race. It's about how to take care of of your musical instrument. So you said, um, Scott, when you were uh, younger, you uh, were a percussionist. You were a drummer in in the band at at one point, to a degree. Yeah, if you want to call it that. Were were there any? Did you learn how to take care of a snare drum? How to change the head out appropriately? How you know? Did you get any of that? Nothing like that. It was a rental. Yeah. You know, and um, it, it, I, I don't know if I took I took good care of the drum, but I didn't take very good care of the case. <laughs> you know, because I was scrawny. I was pushing the case everywhere. I would, you know, sure. I push the drum around in inside its its case, so it got pretty dinged up and scratched. I mean, and, and that is what it is because kids just don't know how to take care of their instruments. Uh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll bring up Ron Turner one more time. He told me, um, if you don't take care of this bassoon, you're going to have to get your own. And I'm telling you, they're tens of thousands of dollars and your, your mommy and daddy don't want to do that. So I took care of my, I took <clears> care <throat> of the bassoon that was lent to me. But, uh, Cameron, uh, Williams who teaches, uh, she's a student at Juilliard and she has her, um, her own, um, organization, her own foundation that deals with music education and diversity and all that sort of thing. And one of the big problems she saw was that kids didn't know how to take care of their instruments, mm-hmm. specifically their string instruments. So she wrote a storybook about four instruments, a violin, viola, cello, and a bass, um, 
that left homes where they were being abused. The, the, <laughs> the instruments left abusive homes and, um, and how they uh, find new homes with kids who know how to take care of them. So the meat of the book is the, um, the instruments saying, well, you don't need to, you know, twist my peg too tightly or you don't need to do X, Y, and Z, you know, right. just, just as a way to teach kids and their parents how to maintain these instruments that the kids are bringing home, you know, the first year they sign up uh, for orchestra. So I chat with uh, Cameron about, uh, you know, writing that book, that process, her life as a student. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a really a uh, cool conversation that I was uh, glad to uh, have. So here it is. Cameron, it's such a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, congrats on Kinderloop. That, that's a, a really phenomenal achievement for you. Thank you so much. And, and before we get in uh, into the book and, and all that sort of thing, I want to talk about another one of your phenomenal achievements. You are a Juilliard student. That 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 carries a lot of weight in itself. What what was the uh, what was the day like when you got that letter or got that phone call when you found out you were going to Juilliard? Well, um, when I when you apply to Juilliard, you do everything through a portal, and so they'd never send you emails when there are updates to that portal. You just kind of have to keep watching out for it. And so I was practicing in my room one day and I remember it was just me and my mom that were home. My siblings and my dad weren't home yet. And I got a text from my friend who's also a violist at Juilliard. She's a year ahead of me. And she told me that Juilliard should have updated the portals now and that I should look. And so I put down my viola and I looked at my portal and all I read was congratulations and I like threw the phone down and ran to my mom's room and I just remember the house being like really dark and she was asleep and I jumped on her bed and I was like mommy I got in I'm, I got in and she was she was like she was half asleep and she was like I what would you get into I was like Juilliard I got into Juilliard and she was like great and then she went back to sleep <laughs> but then after that I just like ran across the house and I like it was it was such an amazing moment because I mean Juilliard has been my dream school since I was maybe 10 and um when I got into you know senior in high school I'd met a few Juilliard students by then and so I really wasn't sure if I would get in or not and so yeah, just in that moment, I was so, so excited and proud of myself. Yeah, and, and you mentioned your mom. You know, uh, so many um, folks uh, like us, Black classical musicians, are first-generation musicians, first-generation uh, college grads. But but it, it seems like you come from a family of musicians. I do, yeah. my uh, Well, my grandmother, uh, she is a pianist. And I think she also sings a little bit, but primarily a pianist. And my late grandfather, he was a vocalist. And my dad, he's a scientist, but he um, he sings a little bit. And my mom, she plays all the wind and brass instruments, piano, she sings. Um, but I think her primary thing is like music history. And my brother and sister are now involved in music as well. My sister, her name is Music. And oh, wow. she plays, yeah, she plays cello and she sings. And my little brother, EJ, he just started playing violin about a year or so ago. Wow. Do you think you uh, could have possibly ended up at Juilliard without that family reinforcement? I mean, because for me, as a 17, 18 year old, I didn't really even have a concept of a conservatory. But it seems like you must have if Juilliard was your dream school. Yeah, I mean... I honestly, I'm not sure. I, I mean, of course, there are people at school who may not have that support, but I think a place so high level and prestigious as Juilliard, I mean, I don't know how I could have done it without my family being there for everything that I do and really pushing me to be the best that I can and supporting me whenever I had like a hard time with something, yeah. but still, you know, keeping it real with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm going to keep it real with you here in a second, but, <laughs> but I want to, uh, I want to hear about life in New York. What, what was that? Uh, what, was, what were those first few weeks like living in the big apple, living in the big city? Well, uh, you know, I'm originally from South Florida, so right. New York City is, like, completely different from South Florida. I mean, South Florida, the traffic is nice, and, like, it's so sunny all the time, mm -hmm. and they're, like, I mean, compared to New York, there are, like, barely any people anywhere. But um, I think um, being 
first being when I was first living in New York, being a part of like orientation helped a lot because there were a lot of trips we took out into the city and like in groups. So you didn't feel so alone. But then also it was nice since I mean, we're in college, we can pretty much go wherever we want, whenever we want. Mm -hmm. So it was nice sort of uh, venturing out into the city because I've been to New York City before, but usually like with my parents or like as a school trip. So it was nice getting out there on my own, like with friends and just really exploring and um, I don't know, not not exactly not having a care, but just feeling more like an adult. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know it was definitely a culture shock with just being around so many people all the time. But for me, that's one of the things I love about New York. I like being around so many people and there's always something to do at any time of the day or any time of the night. Um, I remember there was one time during the school year, um, I went to bed really early just cause it, I was very tired. And mm-hmm. then I woke up and it was like, I don't know, it was like one thirty in the morning and I saw that there was like a movie playing and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to go see this movie. And so I went to the movie theater and there were tons of people there. I mean, if I didn't, if, I didn't know it was like one thirty in the morning. You couldn't have mistaken it for like being in the middle of the day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, but yeah, New York is absolutely incredible. I love it. You know, uh, when I was really um, beating the block and, and doing all of my practicing and, you know, spending six, eight hours in the practice room, um, I was this is when I was living in Los Angeles. So, of course, there was the, the temptation of wanting to go to the beach or, or, or do whatever. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you ever feel like focusing in on your practice is a challenge living in the city that never sleeps? Um, honestly, not really. I mean, my, throughout my uh, years in grade school and at home, my mom has always instilled this um, uh, work ethic of time management in me. So, I mean, I, I really want to go out and do all these amazing things but I'm like I go to school at Juilliard like yeah I've got a lot of work to do so I always I try and set up a daily schedule for myself so like I'll wake up at seven get ready and be in the practice room by eight and practice for like an hour go to my classes get lunch practice again go to more classes do my homework and then I'll be in bed hopefully between like 10 and ten thirty. and I really don't get to go out into the city um until the weekends, mm-hmm. which is how which is how I set up my own schedule. Um, just because during the weekdays a lot is happening, and I'm by the time I by the time I get to the end of my day and I actually have time to go out, I'm just already so beat. And um, I think during first year of college is when a lot of people really um, struggle with that. Um, so yeah, it was definitely hard at some times, but I just kind of remembered where I am, the people I'm around, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta stay on top of my game. Otherwise, I'll be left behind. Well, you, you, you speak about it in, in a very confident voice. So it sounds like you have it all uh, <laughs> handled and, and taken care of. That's really great for you. Thank you. So, um, so I said I was going to keep it real with you. I'm going to keep it trill. So, you know, one of the things I've dedicated uh, my career to at this point is really dismantling uh, some of these long-held traditions in classical music that uh, may not speak to minority populations and that are upheld by major um, classical music institutions. Now, if there's any institution that can uphold any sort of tradition within classical music, it is Juilliard. As a student there, do you feel um, like you're in an equitable space? Do you feel like you're in uh, in a safe space where you can can really thrive as as yourself and grow as your own musician um i think in some aspects of juilliard absolutely in most aspects of juilliard excuse me um absolutely people at juilliard are very incredibly supportive especially the um the academic teachers actually hmm. um yeah, it's it's very interesting. They they're so involved with like in our music, the music portion of our time at Juilliard. They they love to come to our concerts. They like to hear about our teachers and our lessons. And I mean, although they're always on top of us about our academic work, um, they like to um, sort of. M- the I mean, the courses themselves already melt together with our perform the performance 
aspect of our lives but our teachers really really um enforce that melding and so they'll compare things with like theory or music history to whatever we're doing right now which is very very helpful um but of course you know there are like some personal struggles that students go through at school um that teachers don't take into consideration or or they do it like obliviously so Mm -hmm. you know sometimes it couldn't even be their fault they just aren't thinking about it or like especially the older teachers um but then also a lot of teachers are very you know they're very woke about this sort of thing in classical music where not everyone is represented and so Mm -hmm. um some of them are very concerned about that you know they're very real about it they talk about it with us and other teachers you mean you can obviously most people know about this um uh like discrepancy within classical music and you can tell it's just kind of awkward for them to bring up but it's not i mean it's something a lot of us go through and so i think julia in general does a very very good job of making sure we all feel included in that we all have resources um they try and make it available to all of all of us and so i actually i applaud juilliard for that because i feel very uh safe and very um supported there that that's so great to hear because it's so important for an institution like that to to do that and sort of move us into the future uh, but but you you mentioned your academic teachers and i guess i'd actually never thought about that how how is um, music incorporated into your, I don't know, your biology class or, or your literature class? Um, so acad- by academics, I mean, most of our courses are, of course, involved in music. We have sure. theory and ear training and music history. Um, but we we only have one liberal arts class a semester. And so um, honestly, I think I think the liberal arts classes are very interesting, but I, I don't know. They're they're sort of weird at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like this past semester, I took um, a class called Society, Politics, and Culture. Oh. And so we, yeah, we learned a lot about Aristotle, and we talked towards the end of the semester. We talked a lot about just what was going on in the news and how we felt about it. And next semester, I'm taking a class called Ethics. And um, that class is like more Aristotle and Socrates. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. And even, yeah, those teachers are even interested in our musical careers. Um, and we somehow with the the things we're talking about, you think it wouldn't be related to music at all. But mm-hmm. honestly, we relate it back to music all the time, um, which I which I guess is like inevitable because we're all musicians. Right. Um, but yeah, those classes are very interesting, and the way we connect things between that and music, I think, is um, interesting as well. Yeah, and I'm sure it must be so validating to you know have music reinforced in your non-music classes. It just kind of makes classical music all that much more relevant and, and that much more topical, you know. Yeah. So, um, so I first uh, met you um, at the past uh, Sphinx conference. You you participated um, in the Sphinx Tank, and for folks uh, listening who who don't quite know what that is, it's it was sort of like Shark Tank, but um, music based uh, projects that that you were pitching uh, to a to a team of investors. What was the process for that like? How did you begin to um, form a budget and be prepared to ask que- uh, answer questions from investors? So my uncle is actually a lawyer. So oh, he, that helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he sort of helped us going through that process. I mean, because um, I I literally don't know anything about entrepreneurship or publishing a book or anything sure um so it was very um important that i and my family gets all the help that we could get uh, going through that process so yeah my uncle just sort of explained the budget and everything to us and um as far as getting ready for like actually pitching that idea the idea of kinderloot and um being ready for those questions i I sort of just went up to anyone that I could and pitched that idea. Um, my, I like the whole um, 10 minutes, I think it was. 
And then I asked my mom to sort of, my mom, my dad, my uncle, and just everyone in my family to think of questions, like absolutely anything, the hardest questions they could possibly think of, Mm -hmm. and ask me um, after I did my presentation. And uh, we did that a couple times, and um, me personally, I'm very, I think I'm getting better at talking to big crowds, but this I was extremely nervous for it was so nerve-wracking this whole process building up to the actual moment um i definitely had a few breakdowns (laughs) along the way but um yeah i think without that preparation it would have gone a very different way and i think my the confidence that i had when i was up there wouldn't have been there yeah you definitely seemed very confident and and and, you know like you knew what you were doing you seemed like you'd done it before even (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's good. I, I guess um, you had, considering the practice you got from your family. Yeah, yeah. So when um, when you when you came up with the idea for Kinderlute, was the the topic of instrument maintenance always what you thought would be most important? Where did, where did the content for the book come from? Um. So the actual the. The story itself is just something my siblings and I made up as we were writing the book and um, getting ideas for the book. But like the um, damages that happen within the book are things that um, I've definitely dealt with in throughout the time that I've had my foundation working with uh, students elementary school aged throughout my community here in West Palm Beach. Um, and the connections that I have to the elementary schools. Um, so this so, yeah, was like real-world real world problems that you were trying to solve here. Yeah, definitely. And, I, I you know, you want it to be relatable mm-hmm. to students. So if a student reads it, they're like, oh, my friend did that before, and now I know why not to do that <laughs> and how to prevent that. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you ever make a – do you remember – you know, tightening your, your bow too tight or, or I forget. Oh yeah. <laughs> All the time. I don't know what it is with little kids and just tightening that bow, but. <laughs> or, or, or turning the pegs on the instrument and oh goodness yeah. gracious. Wow. And, uh, and you know, you, you talk about the book needing to be relatable, uh, to, to the kids that you're reaching out to. And the first time I read, uh, Kinderloot, it was very noticeable to me that the images of the children in the book represented um, diversity in a big way, even yeah. even all the way down to um, the names you give uh, yeah. the, the instruments. I mean, how, how how did you how did you come to that conclusion? Again, was that just based in making sure it was relatable? The colors of the children in the book was very, very important to us because I think I mean, any book a kid reads, they want to, you know, be, they want to seem like sort of involved in the book, you know? Yeah, and see themselves, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so writing a book where um, the kids are able to see themselves in it was very um, important. I know growing up, I didn't read very many books where like the kids looked like me. So it was like, I don't know, it's sort of like watching something happen. And so with this, it's like, oh my gosh, that little girl looks like me. Like, oh, yeah. I can definitely do this. And I think especially within classical music, um, specifically, the, within this profession, there's, I mean, any place you go, you might be the only, uh, I might be the only little brown girl with dreads, you know? Sure. So, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, oh, I know that story. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something I wanted to make sure uh, this book had within it. So you t- you talked about the um, the students that that you work with in West Palm Beach and your foundation. I actually don't know anything about your foundation. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, um, my foundation called Kamene Strings, a uh, uh, conjunction of my first and middle names, mm-hmm. is a five hundred one c three organization, and uh, basically we collect. Um, donated instruments, violins, violas, cellos, and basses, and we repair them with, with whatever has happened. And if we don't know something about the repair, we'll definitely look it up and um, definitely try it out until we get it. Um, and then we donate those instruments back out into elementary schools and after-school programs and youth orchestras within 
the South Florida community. And now that's uh, starting to actually expand. Um, but yeah, that's uh, basically the groundwork of what we're doing. And then now we're trying to get more into uh, bow repairs and uh, larger repairs and uh, making instruments. So that's something we're trying to branch out towards now. What's the uh, what's the worst shape you've seen an instrument in as far as what what your foundation does has a <laughs> has a has a violin or a bass been completely split in half or something dramatic like that? I think maybe the worst is like the bridge was on backwards, all the strings <laughs> were put on wrong. Like there was a peg, it was it was where it was supposed to be, but it was like it was like broken in half or something, and I don't know how that happens. But oh uh, yeah, what I have no idea how some of these like kids do this to the instruments, and it's like <laughs> some some um, damages you can see like oh that's okay, I can understand that, but other things that like I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and we're using all of these you know vocabulary words, uh, bridge and 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 peg. For if there's someone listening who has no idea what we're talking about, uh, do you think you could just go from top to bottom on a string instrument and and uh, describe all of the different parts that you uh, talk about uh, in the book? Oh yeah, definitely. So um, the very top swirly thing at the instrument that's called the scroll, and that's also where the pegs are held. And so pegs are what we use to tune the instrument if it's um, like. A extremely out of tune mm -hmm. and then the strings obviously the strings and um underneath the strings the black is the fingerboard where we uh play and lay down our fingers on our um, left hand and then we get to the body of the instrument which is the actual instrument where some people may hold it which um just a little tidbit's not good for the varnish um <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the f holes which is also it's shaped Sort of like an S, but that's actually how they used to write F's in like the medieval period, I think. Or like you'll um, see the the forte symbol shaped. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the bridge is um, the little wood piece that holds up the strings um, at a certain level, and then the tail piece is where the strings come into and where also your fine tuners are, where you can uh, tune the instrument if it's only just a little bit out of tune, and then. For violins and violists, we have chin rest, which um, is where we uh, rest our chin whenever we play. Mm -hmm. And if you have a cello or bass, they don't have a chin rest. Right, because um, you're not yeah. putting it under your chin. It's on the floor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm thinking more about, when I think about the family of stringed instruments, I come back to thinking about your family. You know, you have so much support, but there are so many parents out there with kids who are coming home with this stringed instrument that they know nothing about, that they have no idea how to, you know, tell their kids how to maintain it or, or take care of it. Um, other than buying and reading Kinderloot, <laughs> what would be your advice to those parents? Um, so I think my parents sort of went through this same thing as well. And they just sort of learned as I did more things. They were always very curious about the things that I was doing with my instruments. So, cause I mean, they both sort of know about string instruments, but you know, string instruments is not their primary thing. Right. So whenever I'd be like wiping down my instrument or just like using my pegs or anything, they were always like, Oh, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I know my mom actually, cause she played violin, but when she was like very little, and when I was growing up, I was I was very scared of the pegs. I never even wanted to touch them. Barely <laughs> looked at them. So she actually learned how to change my strings for me. So oh, wow. she was changing my yeah she was changing my strings for me for uh, quite a long time. I think probably up until like maybe late middle school, early high school. Yeah, she learned how to do that um, without like having that sort of like training herself so um yeah i think my advice would just be to stay curious always ask them questions i think the question why is a very important question to ask anyone about anything um but yeah just stay curious um and ask questions uh, you know hearing you talk about uh, the early days of your violin playing I, I guess i didn't uh i realize i haven't asked you how you got started how, how old were you when you started playing and and how did that happen so I actually started 
playing piano when I was oh, about okay. two or three. Yeah. Oh, wow. Whoa. And my two mom three. actually taught me piano. Yeah. My mom taught me for a little bit, and then I started... I think she taught me for maybe about three or four years, and then from there I learned piano on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started violin in school when I was five, um, and I didn't get lessons until I was seven or eight. And then I actually started voice when I was about seven um, with the choir we have here in our community, the Young Singers of the Palm Beaches. And then I actually started viola when I was 11. Okay. And um, I didn't want to switch. Like, viola was supposed to be like a like a hobby for me. I was like, yeah, I play violin, but look, I can play viola too. Isn't this cool? Sure. Um, but then in sixth grade, we had solos and ensembles here mm-hmm. in middle school. And so I asked my teacher if I could do both. And she said yes, so I did a viola solo and a a violin quartet. And she heard both of those. And I remember walking back to the orchestra room after my solo, and she asked my mom if I would audition for the advanced orchestra on viola. Because in sixth grade, I was in the intermediate orchestra on violin. Yeah. Um, And so my mom said that she had to ask me because it was my decision. And so uh, the next week my orchestra teacher called me into her office and asked if I would be uh, able to audition for advanced orchestra on viola for my seventh grade year. And I sort of looked at her because I I wanted to say no, um, but she said I could think about it. So I went home, thought about it, and I decided to audition for advanced orchestra on viola. And I got in. And um, so I... I switched completely my seventh grade year when I was 12 and um, I just sort of didn't have time for violin anymore because I got a lot more opportunities on things on viola. So I guess it was sort of like an accidental switch, but it definitely yeah. worked out well. <laughs> or serendipitous maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so what's, what's next? I mean, you, you have a foundation, you're, you're a published author, you're, you're a Juilliard student, a, a, a violist. I mean, what, it, it seems like sitting in an orchestra would be too small of a job for you, or maybe that is what you hope to do one day. Um, yeah, I I definitely want to maybe start an orchestra f- just to get on my feet, but ultimately I would love to like travel the world and sort of do um I definitely want to do chamber music. Ideally, I would like to travel doing string quartet and just performing around the world and hopefully have like kinderlute and diff- for different instruments and in different languages in order and spread that around the world. And then once I've settled down, I want to um, teach at the collegiate and elementary school levels. And I would love to have like a physical um, location attainable for people for Kamine Strings. I would love to expand it into some sort of like pre-college program where you can d- get lessons and there's orchestra and chamber music and you can get instruments and you can um, get your instruments repaired and sort of, but everything is like at an affordable price because yeah. um, something that um, I've realized uh, progressing throughout my uh, foundation is that so many things in classical music as you get older and as you get more advanced, it's just like it sort of gets sort of further away and harder to get. It. And yeah. so I want this uh, physical being of Kamine strings to be attainable for people and sort of like a, a a source for resources for a bunch of different things. And not only that, but like summer festivals and college yeah. help. And mm-hmm. I, I would love to make that happen at some point. Well, it, it sounds like you're you're well on your way. So again, congratulations on on everything you've accomplished, and uh, and and good luck for the future. Uh, but, Thank but you bef- so much. Before I let you go, how can um how can people um buy uh Kinderlute, and and how can they uh, find out more about you and your work and contact you? Um. So, uh, Kamine Strings does have a website. It's just kaminestrings.org. Or you can go to 
kinderloot.com. And if you want to purchase a book, they're on Amazon, or you can go to the Juilliard Store website. Um, but if you want to get 10 books or more, you can contact us directly at admin at org. And if you want to know anything else, our foundation number is 561-215-9671. And uh, you can definitely find me on social media. I have Twitter, um, I have Facebook, and I have Instagram. If you type in my name, it should just come up. I know I have multiple different Instagrams, so there's one for the foundation, Kamine Strings, and I have one for music, and that's Kamine Bratache. So, then, yeah, you can... And, and is there a separate yeah. Instagram for when you're partying and stuff? <laughs> yes, that is. Yes, there's, there's a private well, one. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll let you keep that one to yourself. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, talking about uh, people wanting to order 10 or more books, that has me thinking about the idea of, a you know, orchestra classrooms having a set of, of these yes. books. And... Yes, that's definitely our goal we want that to happen wow wow well cameron thanks again uh i really appreciate you spending the time and and once again good luck with everything thank you so much cameron williams in conversation with garrett mcqueen here on triloquy yeah uh i could never have done what she has already done at her so age. early <laughs> i mean she's talking about having this book published and she's in juilliard and she's got all these she has her like, own foundation mm, i mean i i have to go back if i could go back in time i'd have to go back and all of a sudden have a whole bunch of accomplishments because because i didn't do shit. and you know the, the important thing to note here i think is you know we always talk about access right yeah she come you know her, her you know her race doesn't play so much of a role in uh, lack of access or anything because her parents are both musicians and music teachers and, yeah. and, and she had that foundation and then of course um, in the interview when she's talking about preparing for the Sphinx Tank um, interview or, or, or that pitching which by the way you can uh, watch she has that posted on her uh, Kinderloo website uh, when she talks about how her uncle is a lawyer and yeah. how they were practicing and stuff yeah. so you, you, you just cannot uh, uh, overlook just how important some of those connections are for, and when, for people. When she got into Juilliard she goes running in to wake up her mom and tell her and her mom's like oh that's nice baby. Yeah she's yeah. <laughs> like child I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> anyway. I, I knew you were going to get in there. <laughs> but uh, yeah shout out to Cameron for that uh, for, for that really great interview. If you just uh, Google Kinderloot, K-I-N-D-E-R-L-U-T-E, uh, the first uh, link that pops up for me is her uh, website, so you can learn more about her there. And, you also uh, have to look a little bit further for the Classical Kids Storytime, which yeah. features Kinderloot and you doing the voice. You're the dramatic interp in this one. So, uh, yeah, I visit, think that was my first voice acting gig. <laughs> visit yourclassical.org and look for Classical Kids Storytime Kinderloot. Before we, um, before we head out for today, um, I just wanted to, I wanted to touch on one thing that uh, Cameron was talking about. She was talking about how uh, in the book it was important for the names of the kids and, uh, and even the colors of the kids to be more representative of who she is and, and where she grew up and the importance of reading um, a book where you can see uh, yourself. Mm -hmm. um, do you have that experience with anything you had to read in school or maybe in college really uh, connecting with a character or characters in the book? I did, but it wasn't due to the fact that we were the same race or the same sex or anything like oh, that. Oh, well, what, what was it? Have you read The Stranger? The Stranger. I don't think I know that one. By Camus, C-A-M-U-S. Uh-uh, I'll, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, you'll have to look it up. It's it's absurdist. It's right along the line of Vonnegut and everything like that, which yeah. I guess just, I, I guess that's more a testament to where my headspace was when I was a junior and senior in high school. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I read a lot of uh, Vonnegut myself, and... I saw um, myself more, though, and not in a Vonnegut book, but a short story by um, Kafka. Uh, what's it called? The Metamorphosis? I oh, think. yeah. Like, when I read that short story, it reminded me of waking up one morning and, real, and, and trying to tell my parents that I was gay. Like, I might as well have been hey, a giant roach. <laughs> you good know? point. 
so, good point. So yeah, so so being able to see yourself in literature um, is really great for uh, the kids with Kinderloot. You know, for a lot of uh, folks coming up, we began this opus talking about Black Horn by Bob Watt, Robert Watt. You know, I'm sure a lot of people see themselves in that story, coming from poverty and trying to and trying to uh, work your way up. Maybe having that substitute teacher or that or that regular teacher that's trying to trying to get in your draws or whatever. So trying to hook up. Yeah, we we need to do better as a society about reading books. I feel like my generation, if there's anything we don't do as much as we should is uh, reading. And I'm talking about what's on page, on, on, on pages, not reading in shade, of course, right. because we already do too much of that. What's coming up next time? <laughs> on the... You're ready to go, I see. Okay. On the next um, <laughs> opus of Triloquy, uh, it's going to be uh, Moving Through Gateways Part 3. So I uh, talk uh, with my homegirl, Jen Arnold. She spent many years as a violist with the um, Oregon Symphony over in Portland, Oregon, um, but is moving to the opposite coast. Uh, she's moving over to Virginia to um, get into arts administration. Um, and, and just how, you know, in my story, I felt like the work was bigger off the stage you know that that's how she felt so she's so she talks with me about the gateways festival and how it relates to diversity and inclusion and how she uh plans to bring some of those uh stories into her uh new role on on the opposite american coast next time on triloquy remember to visit our website it's t-r-i-l-l-o-q-u-y.org send emails to T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And one last happy birthday to the Queen Bee herself, Beyonce Giselle Knowles-Carter. <laughs> happy birthday, Queen. 